so I'm going to invite Abby up to read our scripture for today from Ephesians 5 and 6. to develop a ministry of reconciliation. 
and he boiled it down to what the gospel is, what it means to be a Christian. In his words, being a Christian means becoming a new person. That new person shows off the prototype of what reconciliation in God looks like, the prototype of what resurrection is and means in the world. Interspersed in all of the lofty concepts in the early part of the letter are, are prayers and praises to the Holy Ones in Ephesus. You see, the letter's prose can't always contain the message. It, it, it like veers into poetry. The medium can't contain the message. And then there's a shift, and it shifts on the word therefore, if we remember. And that shift, after that, it all gets really concrete. A couple weeks ago, Matt Hoffman showed us these signposts that the letter gives to guide us on our journey to becoming what we've been made. Beloved sons and daughters of God in the mold of Jesus. The beloved Son of God. These signposts say, no longer do we trade in darkness because... The light of the world has shone into us and shines from us. No longer do we deal in deceit and lying because we've been shown the truth and the truth sets us free. No longer do we participate in sexual immorality and drunkenness because now we participate in the life of God and we've been filled not with alcohol but with the Holy Spirit. No longer do we hold on too tightly to things or to hurts because God's grace has given us everything we need, more than we need. And because the root of forgiveness is grace when grace grows into peace. So we get out of the business of either trying to earn everything, earn our own existence, trying to make up for all of our mistakes that we inevitably make, we're trying to always be right, trying to be loved, or being governed by fear. And we get into the imitation game. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, that, again, therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. If you are rooted and grounded in love, you'll also have love on your leaves. You'll bear lovely fruit. This means that our lives, the lives we find in Christ, the lives that are given new birth when we take our hands off of them and let God direct our steps, the lives that become indelibly marked by the sign of the cross, crucified with Christ so I no longer live but Christ lives in me and raised with Christ that thing that we reenact when we're baptized when brought out of the waters made new these are lives centered in on Jesus made possible by Jesus finding their goal in Jesus what I'm trying to say is they're all about Jesus when we come finally to this section of Ephesians, these household codes, and this is like the passage they tell you not to preach on when you have guests, <laughs> right? 
we get these household codes wrong if we're not reading on the edge of our seats, trying to find out just what it might look like for us to imitate Christ in the way we live our everyday lives with our spouse, what, what it might look like what a more Jesus-y version might look like when we relate to our kids or our parents. What it might look like for Jesus to work our jobs, or worse, to work an unjust job, or to be a servant, or maybe even a slave. We've all, we've all seen those bracelets. We've seen the bracelets say WWJD. What does that stand for? Everyone knows that, right? It's not a bad question. Sometimes I don't think it's the best question. I don't think it allows our imaginations to do the sort of work that they might do with a slightly different question. I don't think this would sell as many bracelets, but the acronym I'm suggesting here is HWJLML. <laughs> HWJLML. And that says, how would Jesus live my life? How would Jesus live my life? It's, it's so catchy. <laughs> Not just what I should do at certain big decision points, but what is the shape of a Christ-lived life? What needs to be my mindset, my worldview, my whole approach? And the answer is what I think we feared that it would be. Submission. A Christ-lived life, one which we imitate Jesus in our relationships, is one characterized by the willingness and the ability to submit. First and foremost to God, the Father, developing over time those muscles, like when you're working out, when you first start it's really hard and you're really sore and you're never going to get in shape. But over time you can lift more do it better and get faster and you jump higher. We develop those muscles to be able to say and to mean with Jesus that prayer he prayed in the garden that became the prayer that he taught to his disciples. Not my will, but your will be done. That's a prayer of submission. To submit to what God wants. Because repentance means turning from our ways. Turning from confidence in our ability to make choices based on anything other than our own selfishness. This reminds me of, um, there's a writer, David Foster Wallace, and he writes about his time in Al-Anon and, and, and these recovery programs. And, and if you know anything about him, you know he's one of the most brilliant people, greatest thinkers of, of all. And he finally came to the point where he could say with all the people in the room around him, my greatest thinking got me here. That leads people to submit, to submit to a program, to submit to a higher power, but I suggest to submit to a person who knows you, who cares about you. That kind of submission is, is actually a gift. It can be a, a grace. That sort of trust, and it, it is trust. It's provided for us by God's Spirit. It's shown to us in Christ's life. Life lived by faith. The faithful one. Submission then is, is less about saying uncle and more about crying Abba. 
father, as a beloved child of God. So our text starts with a decree that levels us, just stops us in our tracks. Submit to each other out of respect for Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you not only submit to God, but you submit to each other. Knowing this is all horizontal. Like, I'm going to submit to you, you're going to submit to me. It's submission all over the place here. This is the wallpaper for the rest of what's to come. It's what's in the background that Paul gives us our, our home economics lessons, is what I'm going to call it. How things should look and feel in a home submitted to God's will. First is what he comes to call a mega mystery, right? The, the translation I normally like it, but smooth this over and says, this is a significant allegory, is what the translation says. But what the text actually says is, this is a mega mystery right here. This is, this is a crazy example of what's going on in real life. That something is as day-to-day -day as the way a husband treats his wife. And that that could be a significant signpost, a little parable about the cosmic reality of how Christ relates to his church, loves his church, and sacrifices for his church. You see, one of the ways these verses get misinterpreted is to miss that first statement about everyone submitting to everyone, and only assuming that submission is for wives, and that for some weird reason, godly households look like post-World War II households, right? The other thing that gets lost in our application is the fact that the Jesus place in this story is the dying place, right? The, the Jesus role is the sacrificial role. The role which, if the cycle of falling all over ourselves to submit to each other, to die to the other. If that doesn't start, the Jesus role starts that, or restarts that. So if you're at loggerheads and gridlock, and the submission to each other to honor Christ isn't working, that's when the husband submits, right? That's the Jesus place. Takes it on, upon himself to start that process of reconciliation playing down his life. Saying, you first, by all means, or as Paul says elsewhere, outdo one another in showing love. This is a race to the bottom. Outserve, outlove, outsubmit. This is what it means for both husbands to submit to their, uh, for wives to submit to their husbands as if unto the Lord, and for husbands to love their wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And this requires faith. Faith that the other has your best in mind because it's a really raw deal if they don't. This sort of submission not only submits to the process, but also to the results. If you're doing this um, because you want to ultimately win, like, like we, we love that Philippians 2, and I'll read it a little later, about the every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and tongue confess. But before that, Jesus submitted and emptied himself and became a slave. So you submit to the results because Christ is our pattern and our forerunner. And while death sometimes leads to redemption and resurrection, it also inevitably leads to death. And death hurts. If you're looking in your marriages for this whole thing, because it will eventually work, 
you've got the concept of fate wrong. You'll get discouraged, you'll get frustrated, you might even become desperate. Because submitting means emptying yourself. Trusting that the practice and the outcome will be pleasing to the Lord, even if the harvest isn't evident. I think this is the mystery part. The part where husbands and wives get to reflect the cosmic reality of Christ in the church. Because the good news is that Christ gave himself for the world. And that the church, or folks who've embraced that fact, or probably more accurately, have been embraced by that fact. He gave himself for us in order to make us something better than we are, or could ever be on our own. We're washed in those cleansing, life-giving waters of baptism. We're freed from our sodden, wrinkled garments so that we can join with the saints. The saints of Revelation 7, if we remember that. It says it's a great cloud, uh, it's a great crowd that no one could number. They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, Victory belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and under the Lamb. Sometimes I think the trivial things are the best witness tests for this. Can you all hear me? Are the best witness tests for this. And I, I stand before you as someone who has not perfected this. And, and so here's a small example of this. Um, I have my moments, but I've struggled to let go of some really silly things. One thing I know about my lovely wife, Rachel, is that she really hates beards. And not her own beards. She really hates my beard. And I stand before you bearded. Not as, as bearded as I'd like to be. Not nearly as bearded as my friend Neil. <laughs> yeah. But I said before you showing that I'm not very good at this because if I was really good at this concept and if I did it even in the trivial things, I would be so clean every day. But but she's the one that is sacrificing here, and I'm terrible. So I beg your forgiveness for that. That I'm not practicing what I'm preaching all the way down. That might be silly, but but this is the game, right? This is the dynamic. This is the sometimes serious and sometimes playful give and take, but mostly give, 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 that the scripture's talking about, that exists in faithful relationships built on and shaped by the faithful one of God. We might do well to look at another place in scripture that's been historically interpreted as a marital allegory between Christ and the church. There's two lovers in Solomon's song, and this is racy. Cover on its ears here. But three times in, in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, the beloved one, that's us in the story, erupts with enjoyment. My lover is mine and I am his. I'm my lover's and my lover is mine. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Within relationships there's enjoyment. There's union. Within such relationships there's mistakes and there's forgiveness. There's grace. And there's peace. If 
Ephesians goes on to further complicate things for us. Imitating Jesus means relearning everything. Because the gospel, oddly, strengthens and radically destabilizes relationships. We see this in Jesus' life and works. After all, this is the same Jesus who was obsessed with doing his Father's will. But when he was told, look, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting to speak with you, Jesus can say, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, sister, and brother. You see, that's the rest of these household codes about kids and parents and slaves and masters. You catch something in common with Paul's directive and with Jesus' shocking words. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Parents are to raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. Both of these relationships gain their fullest and most faithful expression when they're triangulated around the Lord. This is the same reason Jesus can call a complete stranger his brother, or his mother, or his sister, because of their common father. This is the same reason we, a bunch of strangers for all intents and purposes, even the ones that have been around for a while, not just our guests, we can become family. This is the same impetus we have for continuing to reach out to go out with open hearts and hands and minds and doors to the other. Because we were the other. And we've now in Christ become one another. You see how, how crazy that statement is? We were the other, but now we've become one another in Christ. Because we submit to God, our Father. We're related to Jesus, our true elder brother. This is the mission part of submission. This is how Jesus, at his most vulnerable and weak, can peer down from the cross and gesture towards Mary, to Mary towards the beloved disciple and say, Woman, here is your son. And then he looks at John and says, This is your mother. That he forms a family at his feet, at his, the moment of his submission, dying on the cross so that we might have life. In that last home economics session, section about slaves and masters, the home economics of being a slave. Surely this liberating good news, remember from Isaiah 61, freedom to the captives, release to the prisoners. Surely that liberating good news unchains the slave, doesn't it? Surely it unindentures a servant from a boss. At least it gives us an allowance to quit jobs where we feel like they don't respect us. That we're being used by our employers. But instead, the advice is startlingly conservative. Frustratingly bent on maintaining status quo, even bad ones. What's with that? Again, in case we forget, we need to look to Jesus. See, what this is telling us in light of what of who Christ is and how Christ is and what we're called to do from where we are to play that imitation game 
to grow in his likeness. In that case, we find Jesus as the doulos par excellence. And doulos is a word that means slave or servant. The slave for which Paul is a slave, the suffering servant anticipated by Isaiah. He's described in Philippians 2. Paul says, therefore, and he says this from prison, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, consider others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind that Jesus has, who, though being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to exploit. Rather, he made himself nothing. And here's the, here's the kicker. He took the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus knows. Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to be oppressed, to be persecuted, to be killed. Jesus knows. And I think the point of all this, again, is to return us to imitating God in Christ. Where we can look in the mirror and then look at Christ and then look in the mirror again and hopefully over time the differences between the two get lesser and lesser. Hopefully over time people start to confuse us with Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? If, if we got so good at imitating Christ people thought, oh that looked like Christ just there. Maybe we'd start to confuse ourselves or the things that we used to do, we don't do because Christ is living by His Spirit and active in us. When that risen Christ gets embodied in His body, the church, in a real, costly, painful, sacrificial, submissive way, that this call penetrates our hearts so that God's will may be recognized in suffering, through our obedience. And let's not forget for masters, this is pretty destabilizing, this gospel. Because for someone who knows Jesus as Lord, not just their Lord, but the Lord of the world, it creates a bit of dissonance for them and anyone else trying to fill that role. That's why Pharaoh was so hard-hearted and bothered by God's people claim that their God was Adonai, Lord. This is why Caesar and Herod and, and Pilate and the religious elite were so threatened by a wandering, rabble-rousing rabbi who gathered outcasts around him and made authority claims that this was the way the world was and would be. This is why Paul can write so sharply almost kind of manipulatively, if you go back to um, to his friend Philemon, about a slave. 
And he writes to Philemon about this slave who used to be useless, but now is, quote, like a son in the faith to him. Paul complicates the way things are by sending Onesimus back to him. He says, like sending his own heart, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, that is as a dearly loved brother. This is what the gospel does. For the master, like the slave, still falls under that first line, submit to one another out of respect for Christ. Because both have the same master in heaven, and it's a master who doesn't distinguish based on status. A master worthy of our submission because he's shown us submission in his son. A Christ who's, like Nate said earlier, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. This is the kind of Lord that inspired the hymn writer, Annie Crosby, to pen. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. So as you start the semester, whatever your part in Christ's body that you happen to be right now, and this changes over the years, maybe you're a student, and your main source of submission is not getting stuck, not getting stuck in that quagmire of stress and competition and excellence and planning for the future on one hand, or, or laziness and despair and waste on the other. Maybe you're a teacher or an administrator or a principal, sorry, for whom submission looks like remembering that Christ is Lord of the classroom, that the King of Kings rules over the school and does so through service, rules through serving, through giving his very life for those whom he's been put over. That Jesus flips the hierarchy. His Leadership looks like sacrifice. Shepherding a flock means leaving 99 to go find that one lost one, laying down his life for his sheep. Maybe your mom and dad are a little one. Maybe the home economics of submission means figuring out one little specific area to concentrate in your imitation of Christ. Maybe it's the way that you talk to your kid especially when I healing. Maybe it's your willingness to do that one small thing that you really hate to do because that one small little death in yourself allows you to come alive to God in Christ in a ton of different ways. Maybe you're none of the above and you don't get to opt out of this. This isn't a free pass. This is a not so fast. As part of the body, as part of Christ's body, you have a part to play. You have a way to submit, a way to serve. You're surrounded by people in this building and in this neighborhood that you can learn, that you can become a student of Christ. So you are a student. That you can learn these ways of laying down your life for someone else. Of prayer, of fasting, of asking good questions, of following up, of encouragement, and challenge of bearing burdens, of providing of your resources, and this is, this is money, but this is also time, this is food, this is advocacy, this is tears, this is cheers. And coming alongside an elementary school or a middle school, 
They don't need us to save them, but they could probably use more and more witnesses of the Christ who's already gone before us, whose Spirit knows every corner of those halls. Have you ever thought of that? The Holy Spirit knows every single nook and cranny of those schools. These schools, though, could stand to be blessed by our time, by our care, by our risk, and above all, by the love of Christ made possible by grace that grows into peace. You guys pray with me. Father, I thank you for these challenging words that challenge me and they that challenge others. And if they don't, we're probably not reading them right. Lord, uh, bother us, destabilize us, threaten the easy ways that we live without thinking. Grow in us the, the muscles, the reflexes, the habits of submitting to you and your will. And the primary way that we show that we're submitted to you is by submitting to each other and to others. Father, grow us to look more and more like Jesus. Each of us in our, our own special, surprising way, looking more and more like Jesus. We thank you for your spirit that does that. And Lord, in, in these next couple minutes, quiet um, us, speak to us, show us places where we're we're not submitted to you. Give us um, ears to hear and eyes to see uh, ways that you're calling us this, this, this week um, to, to know you better, to listen to you, and, and to live in light of your grace. Um, uh, Lord, use this time to, to speak in the hearts who, who have ignored you or quieted you, um, either for a season or for a long time, Lord. Lord, we trust you. May, may our lives be lived out of the overflow of that trust, out of the overflow of that grace, out of the confidence um, that you are uh, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.